0: Welcome to the Doctors for the Environment podcast. This is a monthly podcast where we talk about planetary health in Australia and around the world. This episode, we are going to be diving into all things gas energy and the health impacts associated with it, as well as what's currently going on in Australia. And we'll have a very, very special guest joining us to tackle this mammoth topic
1: we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to elders past present and emerging our podcast is recorded all over australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places that they value I am good. Karen. how are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very excited to be back for our third podcast. I know, number
0: three. Whoop, whoop. Yes.
1: <laughs> okay, so you know how we try and have a little bit of a banter at the beginning of each podcast. Yes, love the banter. This is a... Love it. love it. This is a question that is super... Well, I'm giving you a hint. The answer to this question is like really relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. But do you think environmental problems have to be seen to be believed?
0: Ooh, that is a good question. I think no. Um, And the reason I say that is because of the strength of the youth movement around climate change. Um, I think that there's a lot of people that are very savvy with how they get information and can balance information um, and are really looking um, for that kind of maybe more um, unbiased information as well and are willing to act on it. However, I think from a lot of like the direct action I've done, people that are Have been living on property or have been doing like marine research for a long time. Generally, the older people that are really involved in direct action are people that have directly experienced it. So, I think you don't need to have like seen the effects of climate change personally to believe it. But I think when you have, it really like sets a fire under people for them to do something about it. What do you think? Awesome.
1: I think I, agree. I I definitely agree, but I've, like, I think of myself as a scientist, <laughs> but I think some of the – like I've had these few experiences in my life where I've seen environmental problems and I've had like a light bulb moment mm. and it's just been like I've finally understood the true extent of it. And so I think two that really stand out is one, um, when I was studying in the U.S., visiting West Virginia and seeing – the mountaintop removal mining for coal. Mm. It just made me realize the huge extent of coal that's being extracted and put into the atmosphere. And then I understood the extent of climate change. I know that sounds like crazy. But then the other thing is flying last year or the year before out to Longreach from Brisbane, flying over the gas fields. It is huge. incredible. Yeah. Once you see that, you realize how much gas is got going- gas expressions going on in Australia. So yeah, I guess I would like to think that everyone could be as motivated just by reading the facts. But I think that seeing it does have such a huge
0: impact mm, on you. Yeah, it's almost like a really dark beauty almost when you're looking at it. Like, you're like it's really incredible to look at and also extremely devastating and gut-wrenching to look at. Oh, I know what you mean yeah. <laughs>
1: because it's so large. It's almost like looking at a magic
0: eye yeah. because there's so many repetitions
1: yeah. <laughs> of the gas exactly. walls over and over <laughs> again. It's just incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Um, so I'm very excited that we're back on the podcast. Last episode we talked about the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act. Um, review that's been taking place with Dr Catherine Barraclough. Have you been following what's happened since then, Karen?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was so good because then when it came out in the news, I actually knew what was going (laughs) on and I found it so much more engaging. So I think what's happened is the interim review was released Mm. and then um, the response to it has been the government actually wants to take really rapid action before the review is actually complete.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's. I've been reading about it as well. It's interesting. The On one hand, it's easy to think that maybe that's really great. They're taking it really seriously. But on the other hand, it means they're probably going to not do things thoroughly, might rush through it too quickly. And the other thing I noticed was that they flat out are refusing um, to have an independent regulator oversee things, which sets off some alarm bells for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> I know
1: okay so what they're proposing is basically yes let's do the national standards and then we'll delegate to the states to regulate Mm. but I think the argument is is that if you're going to do that you need the independent regulator um and that's why they're proposing that at, at a national level yeah um so yeah I'm really interested to see how it goes from here
0: yeah um, kind of in line with that topic is what we're going to talk about this episode. So I don't know if you've been seeing around a lot, the hashtag healthy recovery, Karen,
1: I'm pretty sure that I saw your face in something related to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought maybe you're just doing a little bit more of self-promotion. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you're, you're a bit famous now. I've made it big time now that the podcast is out in the world, um, yeah. But I think it's really interesting. So we've got the, Australia has the, the National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, um, which has made a bit of a name for themselves, I think, because they're really pushing this gas-led recovery in Australia as how we're going to get out, like recover after this massive economic insult to the country. Um, and it's a bit controversial because the committee is made up by a lot of people with vested interests in gas and coal um and many of them haven't um been willing to sort of declare their um conflicting interests
1: (laughs) i see okay um yeah and as health professionals we have a vested interest in a healthy recovery where we promote activities that improve human health
0: yeah and i guess it's it would be a shame after COVID nineteen, when we've seen the amount of emissions drop off so much to the levels that need to happen as per the Paris Agreement to keep warming below one point five or at least below two. Um, we've actually sort of achieved that through COVID, and it would be such a shame not to then think about well, how can we like how can we make sure that we're creating the future that is actually going to be healthy for us to live in. I agree.
1: We need to make the most of it. But I think um, we're really lucky today we're going to have a special guest come and talk to us. But um, let's just take a quick break and then we'll be back.
0: Imagine coming out of the COVID-19 crisis with cleaner air, water and a safer climate for our families and communities. Our
1: government has listened to the health experts and acted decisively on COVID-19.
2: This has saved thousands of Australian
1: lives. We now have an opportunity to save thousands more lives by listening to our climate and health experts.
2: They are calling for
0: urgent action on climate change, the biggest health threat humanity has ever faced.
2: But instead of listening to the experts, we are seeing a push for a gas-led recovery. Gas is hazardous to health. Public funds to expand the gas industry should not come at the expense of our health.
0: So why is the government listening to experts on one health crisis and not the other? We must turn off the gas.
2: The way we produce gas, transport it, and export it as LNG is a major contributor to Australia's rising greenhouse gas emissions.
1: Like coal, it comes at a huge cost to the health of our community. Gas yes,
2: is a major contributor to climate change. Our disaster summer of heat, bushfires, smoke pollution, that for weeks choking our towns and cities is climate change in action.
0: Gas mining methods such as fracking can deplete and pollute the precious groundwater relied on by farming families and communities. They also can pollute the air and risk the health of surrounding communities.
2: As doctors and other health professionals, we can't accept the short and long-term health risks of gas. As
1: Australians, we have to make a choice. We can keep mining and burning dirty fossil fuels
0: that are leading us towards ecological collapse, or we can harness Australia's
2: plentiful solar and wind to protect our environment and therefore our health, which is the most precious thing we have. A transition to renewable energy will also create jobs, benefiting our communities and kickstarting our post-pandemic recovery. The choice is clear. Turn, Turn off the, off the gas. gas. All right,
0: so I'd like to introduce our guest um, for this episode, uh, Professor Melissa Haswell. She is a professor of practice in environmental well-being at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Melissa.
2: Thank you very much. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Yeah, well, I... When I think about it, those years just pile up. So now I could say I've been, <laughs> I have about 35 years of experience in public health um, and aspects ranging from environmental health to toxicology to infectious disease um, and then around. Um 1995, I started working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. So that brought in aspects around mental health and well-being and empowerment um, and really the broader picture of health. It really matters to how we feel, how comfortably we feel in being ourselves and really uh, our life satisfaction.
0: Mm. An incredible body of work.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and I guess the thing that about environmental well-being, I'm not sure. I might be the only one in the world, only professor of well-being in the world perhaps, Uh, but it really is the concept because environmental health tends to be quite physically oriented in the way people Mm. interpret it. Yeah, but well-being takes into account. If if you use an Aboriginal definition of health, it's about – you know, the social, emotional, cultural and spiritual well-being. It's not just individual, it's the collective well-being of the whole Mm. community. So, yeah, so I work in Indigenous strategy and services uh, under the Pro Vice Chancellor at Sydney Uni now.
0: Mm, Incredible. That's
1: fantastic. Oh, that's great. Um, So, Melissa, actually you're on here today to talk to us about coal seam gas. And I thought we might just start at the very beginning because – coal seam gas can mean a lot of different things to lots of different people. Um, Like, is coal seam gas the same thing as fracking? And so I was just wondering if you could just tell us or summarize what coal seam gas encompasses.
2: Yes, I could spend a whole hour talking about it because it is extremely (laughs) complicated. Um, But essentially, just to say that uh, we have conventional gas and we shouldn't forget about... You know, the environmental impacts of conventional gas, that's where we just stick a drill down and the gas is pretty much concentrated in one area. So you have a few wells in a place that has a lot of gas and you harvest it. Um, and that is not environmentally friendly, uh, environmental risk-free either. Um, but when we start talking about unconventional gas, Um, That's where um, the gas is not concentrated in a small area. Uh, It's actually dispersed or or spread out across large areas. In order to retrieve that gas, um, you need to do additional things. So that kind of unconventional gas we can find that's linked, that's sitting on top or integrated into our coal. Um, so when the coal is sitting there, it also makes gas as well. And that's fairly shallow. Also, another kind of, and probably the more, more common, especially in the United States, is shale gas, where you go not just to the coal seam, but you have to go drill right down a kilometer or more into shale layers that are very deep under the Earth's surface you have a lot more drilling you have a lot more wells because you don't get a lot of gas out of one well um, whether it's coal or shale Uh, and you also often have to do extra things so for coal seam gas sometimes all you have to do is take the water out so the first thing you do is take the water that's lying on the coal seam you dewater or take that water out and then the gas flows but sometimes you have to uh, give a nudge to that, or you, that's where you go do fracking, is where you, you smash down lots of water and sand um, through the well, which causes little explosions and breakage, and that causes the gas to flow. Now, it's sometimes in colsing gas, and, and as you progress later on in, your, in the gas fields, you have to do more and more of this fracking, uh, but it's always needed for shale gas mining. So that's where you get lots of chemicals and additional things.
1: So what, what do we do in Australia?
2: Um, Queensland is, has taken off, really, in terms of coal steam gas mining well in advance of other states. And now there's something like, well, as of 2017, 2018, there are about 10,600 wells in Queensland. And there's also been approvals since 2017, 18, at the tune of thousands more. So it's really gung-ho going in Queensland. (laughs) Okay,
1: I think that paints a picture. We're in the tens of thousands. So obviously we're going to spend most of the time talking about health, how it relates to unconventional gas. But I think it's really important that we have a really good understanding of why why we have tens of thousands. Like what are the main reasons why we're doing unconventional gas mining? Like I've heard people say um, that gas is a transition fuel. Is that one of the reasons why we do unconventional gas? Uh,
2: I don't think that's a reason why we do unconventional gas, but I think that's used as an excuse in a way, in a sense. <laughs> yeah, so we do have other alternatives right now. Um, and I think when you hear someone say it's a transition fuel, it tends to be people who either don't really know the total story around gas, that in fact, yeah, sure, if you if you burn gas in front of someone, then there's less emissions in the combustion or the burning process um, than coal, for example. Um, but if you start to look at the whole process that it took to get that gas uh, from deep under the ground um, through these processes that I'm talking about and transporting it, there's a lot of leakage along the way. And along the way, right to to your stove um, or your gas heater or where industry uses it or when it's shipped overseas. So there are lots and lots of emissions that add up when you go through the whole, what they call the life cycle. Um, so getting that gas to its destination to be burned, there's lots and lots of greenhouse gas emissions.
0: I thought it was really interesting. I was reading today... Um, DEA's supplementary submission for the Narabai gas project. And I didn't realize how much sort of fugitive gas there is that escapes. And that even if it's at the lower end of the percentages of what can escape, you lose the benefit over coal really quickly.
2: Yeah. So in my opinion, we're asking the wrong question when we ask, is it cleaner than coal? What we should be Mm. asking, is it clean enough to protect our climate? And the answer to that question Mm. is no. And especially, Mm. and the other question, the question we really should be asking, is it cleaner than renewable energies? And absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I think it was really good that we got that out there earlier. And Kaya, we must have both been studying because <laughs> I think I found it really, um, I'm a really visual person and seeing that hockey stick for the methane oh my as God. well. Yeah. I actually haven't seen that before. Like I, I think everyone's really familiar with the carbon dioxide graph, but I had no idea that um, methane had increased that high in the atmosphere yes. as
2: well. Yeah. Um, So methane is, uh, you often see numbers of something like 20 to 25 times um, more potent as a greenhouse gas compared to carbon dioxide, but that's actually the average over 100 years. Um, And with climate change happening so rapidly, um, we're not talking about 100 years from now, we're actually talking about right now. So in 20-year period, it's 86 times more potent. Um, and then it's, it simply continues to break down. So if you divide it by 100, obviously you're going to get a smaller number than if you look in the short term.
1: Yeah, that's really startling, that statistic, isn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's still used very much. 20 to 25 is still often used. And I've 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 talked to people, you know, specialist people in methane, and they say, well, it's only because that's a number everybody agrees on. It's not the number that's really important to our climate. Right.
1: Okay. So I think um I think with lots of fossil fuel mining, there's the local impacts and there's the global impacts, and so clearly for unconventional gas, it has massive global impacts and indirect effects on health through climate change. Um, which we've established, but I think now we want to talk more about some of the local effects.
0: I think Kaya is going to quiz you a little bit. Um, so, so many people are really passionate about trying to have more of a renewable future as opposed to a gas-led future, um, and so it could be a good time to talk about the health impacts of sure. gas and one of the reasons why people care so much about trying to prevent more and more gas fields being created um, what are some of the things that people um, like what can people develop if they live close to gas fields or near gas mining what are they being exposed to
2: so that's a it's a hard question to answer um, it sounds like an easy question but in fact especially when we talk about coal seam gas um, so if you asked me about shale gas mining, I could very confidently tell you a whole range of health issues. Um, and, that, and that's because enough people in America, 17.6 million people, live within mm. a mile of a well, 1.6 kilometers. And that started about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And, and that's mainly, well, most of, like two-thirds of the gas mining is shale gas mining, and there's not enough research to go around to look at the coal seam gas or coal bed methane, as they call it over there. Over in America, there's been multiple groups who have had funding to do research um, through different funding pathways. Uh, but unfortunately, here in Australia, we haven't had national health and medical research funding to look. Um, We've had two inquiries into wind energy here and the potential impacts, which have come up with nothing. However, there really has not been a concerted effort uh, to understand the health impacts of coal seam gas mining. There's been some really. It's so disappointing. Yeah. It's so disappointing
0: that they dedicate all this time into looking at wind turbines. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> I guess it's, yeah, uh. it did clear up a number of misconceptions. So that is a good thing from those inquiries. Mm. But yeah, so most of the funding has been channeled through uh, CSIRO and uh, in a partnership with the gas industry called Jazeera mm. Yeah. So, and really Queensland Health, they're this tiny. Basically, they they pulled together information they had around and published a report. Um, There's been a few reports um, around uh, exposures and hospitalizations and children um, in the areas in the Darling Downs and shown some some increases. Uh, But when you think about... You know, well over 300 studies now, I would say, in the United States where impacts, so pre and post and distance impacts and a whole range of increasingly sophisticated studies. Um, when we think that two or three <laughs> handful of studies we have here in Australia, and really the handful of mm-hmm. studies on coal seam gas, we just don't know. Um, but... To me, the best place we can look for information on gas mining is, therefore, the shale gas. So we can't, Mm. we shouldn't assume that it's going to be any less. It could be even more. But until we've done the Mm. research, we don't know.
0: Yeah. And what are the health impacts of living near shale
2: gas? Yep. So there's been a number of studies. And look, you can't. Put people in cages next to shale gas and go. What? Yeah, <laughs> that's why it's so difficult to answer the question that you pose. <laughs> so we have to be very ethical mm. in our research, but because all of this progressed so quickly before the research on its safety progressed, in lots of ways, that is what people had to experience in the states. Yes, seventeen point six million people. Near a gas well, there's still lots of questions. But um, the kinds of research has been done have been basically looking at the prevalence or incidence of or or diseases arising among Mm. people who are living relatively close compared to those living further away. The data is probably very strongest on asthma. Mm. Yeah, a really excellent study um, showed that people living close to gas activities. So I want to say it's not just the wells. There's a whole range of infrastructure that can also Mm -hmm. expose people. Um, But in terms of uh, needing a prescription change, so worsening of symptoms, having to go to the emergency room, and also um, actually being hospitalized for asthma was substantially higher among those living close to wells compared to those living further away. And there's some evidence of acute respiratory hospitalizations higher the closer you are. Also uh, increased hospitalizations from cardiovascular conditions, kidney and urinary infections and stones. There is a wide range of these uh, aspects, but probably the place where the evidence is the strongest is actually in terms of birth outcomes. So there's been a a Mm. concentration of studies. Not all studies find exactly the same things, but several, probably about eight or nine studies and quite large ones now have shown that babies born from mothers whose pregnancies were spent closer to gas operations had lower average birth weight on whole, also more small for gestational age births. And an increase in Mm. actual low birth weight, which is quite a significant, uh, carries a lot of significant health risks through life. Mm. uh, Some studies have suggested a higher rate of some birth defects and probably most, the evidence is most strong around congenital heart conditions. And then uh, severe preterm birth, so it does appear that the earlier in pregnancy is where uh, there's the greatest sensitivity. So severe preterm birth and spontaneous abortions have been seen in a few studies. And then a couple of studies have suggested a higher infant mortality. So all around those aspects, I mean, this is a really serious issue because we want to have, we want to give our next generation, you know, the best start in life we possibly can.
1: Absolutely. Melissa, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> Thank, Thank you more. so much for going through that. Um, <laughs> do you want me to
2: just say them?
1: I guess, yeah. And then I also wanted, after you do that, to talk to you yes. about the mental health yeah. as well.
2: Yeah. Initially, there were studies which were showing a higher frequency of things like skin rashes and chronic nasal and sinus irritation, eye irritation, nosebleeds, migraine headaches. So those are probably the things that are most noticeable potentially due to you know, more direct exposures to some of the chemicals that are used. Gas mining exposes people to a lot of large truck traffic. So you've got diesel exhaust. You've also got disturbance of peace in your community and also the higher risk of traffic accidents, which has been seen in a number of studies in the United States. And then there's all a whole range of health disturbances that come from when our our social and emotional well-being often call them psychosocial impacts there's so many so we don't just think about what's going down the well we actually it's a whole change in the community's character so there are a number of studies which is shown in the united states particularly but also increasing here and this can range from just having higher levels of stress in your life because for a whole range of worries, uncertainty, what's going to happen to my farm if I'm a farmer, what's going to happen to my kids if I'm near to a well. The noise, the lights, quiet places suddenly become industrial zones really. By the time the gas fields are developed, people become disempowered they lose control over their land if it's a farmer or their community that sense of belonging to their communities is disturbed householders often worry about their property values farmers worry because uh, some insurance companies have come forward and said that they won't actually insure their properties anymore so if the water goes out who's going to who's going to help me maintain mm also associated with conflict. So some oftentimes there's some people in the community think it's the greatest thing ever. And then you have people in the community says, Whoa, this is not this is I don't want to see this happen to my environment where my kids go to school, where they play.
1: Melissa, do you think a large part of it is feeling um, like that disempowerment? Because I know a lot of the issue is is that if you own a farm, you don't own the resources beneath it and so you're quite limited with your
2: ability really to influence what happens? Well, certainly farmers are at the coal face. So not only what you said, but also that interaction uh, with a company that you didn't ask for. So suddenly someone else has the right to come in and, and change your land. So definitely, especially for farmers, that's the case, but you might be a landholder next door. You might have a house next door and you're also exposed to all that disruption of your neighborhood. Suddenly the streets aren't safe for your kids to play anymore. So that whole change of surroundings. And then towns are very much changed. So you go from maybe a quiet town, maybe you don't have a whole lot of economic activity going on, then suddenly you do. <laughs> and you know, house prices, all sorts of pricing changes at that time, even down to apprentices. You can't, so businesses can't get apprentices because they're getting a lot more money in the uh, industry. And then after the boom time, the buildup, the construction phase, then suddenly all that goes away. So you have properties Like houses that are empty that were built for that period and now there's nobody living there. Um, The businesses go down in terms of their booming. And so you're left after that with this kind of, this is my community but it's not the same. And you have lots of trucks then because you've gotten into the production phase so you've got a lot of gas being produced and and being moved out but you don't have that economic activity along with it
1: That's a really good summary
2: Yeah yes and you also have aboriginal people you know seeing the land that they you know for generations well thousands of years hundreds of generations as custodians of mm-hmm. that land and yeah that I, that is a very heartbreaking situation Uh, many times.
0: Absolutely. Um, So I guess what we can move on to is um, when I was doing a bit of researching, I also saw that you wrote an article um, with Dr David Shearman earlier this year um, that was published in the Canberra Times. And you said that Australia has a broken system of environmental and health assessment for gas projects. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit.
2: Yes, well, I think even the um, the committee itself, the Samuels Committee for the Environmental Law Review, has pretty much said that. And we can look at it in at a, at a wide array of things that Australia is doing where the laws are not preventing loss of uh, environmental pollution. We've all seen the Murray-Darling River and what's been happening there. And particularly in gas mining where we have... Lots of chemicals, lots of procedures, lots of risks to water, air, soil, and yet it's, and the climate, and yet it's an industry that's being promoted very much so, even more so in COVID 19. So our current crisis has covered up our earlier this year crisis of our bushfires, which said we have got a real problem now in terms of climate change. So yeah, mm.
0: and can you tell us a little bit about what is going on with the Narrabri gas project?
2: Um, yes, yeah, so I was involved with the. Um, <laughs> I presented to the commission. So, so Narrabri has there has been a gas development, but very much restricted to the original size of the project for some years now. And there's been a number mm. of attempts to to go into full production and probably right now is the crux point. So, whereas there was slowing down for various reasons to allow that to expand to full production. Right now, the New South Wales Department of Planning has approved expansion of 850 more wells within the Piligal Forest, which is the largest remnant forest in the eastern side of our country.
1: Do you know what's so interesting is that when we were getting ready for this podcast, I was camping last week right near where the proposed expansion is (laughs) and it really put it into context for me because I was learning so much about where I was and where I was camping. It's one of the most biodiverse regions in Australia and because it's a meeting of the east and kind of western ecosystems Mm. and like, for example, where I was, they have a third of Australia's parrot species in one area and so driving through, I saw a lot of um, signs about the proposal and a lot of, um, you know, lock the gate signs against
2: it. So, yeah, it really put it into context mm. for me. Mm. The Gammaroy people have cared for that land um, and nurtured that biodiversity for you know, tens of thousands of years. Uh, there are a number of heritage sites that are at risk as well as the biodiversity the environmental integrity of this very wonderful forest area. And I guess because of climate change, you also have, you know, our forests are becoming more vulnerable. So the last thing we should be doing is uh, putting things in that might you know risk the entire ecosystem.
0: Um, I also, I wanted to ask what your thoughts were about the, in, so in Australia we have the national... COVID-19 Coordination Commission, um, which seems to be quite interested in a gas-led recovery for Australia. What are your thoughts on this and what do you think a better option would be? (laughs) Yes,
2: I don't have favourable thoughts on that idea. (laughs) I really think Mm. we need to be building the future. We don't need to be progressing... Industries that we know, without a doubt, are going to be making our future worse, not better. So if it's a time where we could step into a much better place in terms of people coming together and being involved in the future, and the secrecy around this, why? uh, Why is it secret if it's Australia's future? Shouldn't we all have a voice? in that future, and shouldn't we be focusing in on a better world for our young people? Melissa,
1: I guess one of the things we're wondering is, we've talked about so much, but um, if our listeners took away one thing from this interview, what would you want it to be?
2: So we have a choice in where our economic development goes. So that's some, there are many options out there for Australia to progress extremely well um, I mean, obviously, we're we're hit by COVID, um, but we came. In, we we have many advantages through COVID. We're seeing the fact that we can pull together and be a cohesive community, work together and protect and care for one another. We know that now; it's been tested. Uh, we do have challenges in our future. It's not over, um, but I would say we we can be. Very much have a lot of gratitude that our country has done, has come together the way it has. And where we go economically, renewable energy transitions globally to meet um, the need to stay within a healthy climate or a relatively healthy climate is a global imperative. We in Australia have so many advantages economically. We've got great universities, we've got really smart people, we've got such potential for innovation and development and renewables. But to to have our future decided in secret, decided without that community involvement, uh, and going towards fossil fuels, coal, gas, it doesn't make any sense. So we have, and I've read a lot of experts talking, and I personally also agree. This is our time, and we can't blow this. It's now. That's a,
0: thank you. That's a great. That's a great ending. <laughs> thank,
2: thank you welcome. so much. Thank
0: you so much for joining us, Melissa. You're welcome.
1: Just for interest, I was listening to a Graden Institute podcast recently, and they were going through um, the renewables and the arguments for the cost effectiveness and it was just there's just yeah, no I reason it's just there's, there's no reason why we need to there be doing no fossil reason fuels. why
2: we need to even look at fossil fuels apart from how quickly can we phase them out yeah amen okay <laughs> there are plenty of ways we can we can bring employment opportunities to to places that and and we definitely should like any industry that transitions uh, requires assistance for the workers to learn new skills, but the more we allow communities and their their strengths, their abilities, we we should be putting the the tools in the hands of communities to enable that transition.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah,
2: fantastic.
0: Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Thanks so much, Professor Melissa Haswell. Alrighty, that's a wrap for this month's episode. Um, Thank you so much for joining us all the way through to episode three. We hope you found today's episode informative and enjoyable. As always, you can find out lots more information about the topics we talk about on the Doctors for the Environment website, which is www.dea.org.au. Check us out next month with a brand new episode and don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out and tell your mates all about it. See ya.